This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Thanks for downloading the In Our Time podcast. For more details about In Our Time and for our terms of use, please go to bbc.co.uk forward slash radio 4. I hope you enjoy the programme. Hello, quote, Its grandeur does not consist in one thing, but in the unique assemblage of all things. Whatever human industry has created, you find there. It seems as if only magic could have gathered this mass of wealth from all the ends of the earth, end quote. So wrote Charlotte Bronte in 1851, after visiting the great exhibition set in the vast Crystal Palace in London's Hyde Park. By the time the exhibition closed, one quarter of the entire British population had visited Crystal Palace, the first prefabricated building of its kind, to marvel at an extraordinary array of exhibits, amongst which were the biggest diamond in the world, a lighthouse, a huge microscope, a carriage drawn by kites, furniture made of coal, and a set of artificial teeth fitted with a swivel device which allowed the user to yawn without displacing them. Its impact was great in terms of the growth of British manufacturing, the burgeoning of a global consumer market, the development of museums, and the international standing of Britain, culturally and technologically. So how did the exhibition, as it were, crystallise a particular moment in early Victorian Britain? In what way did it capitalise on the dawn of mass travel and greater levels of international cooperation? And what ideas drove it? With me to discuss the great exhibition are Jeremy Black, Professor of History at the University of Exeter, Hermione Hobhouse, architectural historian and writer, and Clive Amsley, Professor of History at the Open University. Jeremy Black, what do you think the Great Exhibition was an expression of? I think it was an expression of the age of utilitarianism, the idea that human effort ought to be organised for the improvement of mankind. And I think both visually and in terms of the contents of the exhibition, it very much fulfilled that purpose. Was it discussed in terms of the ideas behind it at the time? Very much so. There was a large debate about the direction in which Britain ought to be going. There was tension about how far it ought to embrace the ideas of industrialisation. Was industrialisation, in other words, something that was unfortunate, something that we had to have in order to finance the existing system? Or how far should there be, as it were, an embrace of modernity, modernity understood in in terms of the public use of the industrial profit that was coming through? And where did this discussion take place? Was it in the magazines? Are we talking about coffee houses? Uh, Where would we look to find evidence of this discussion about Britain's uh, place in the world and future in the world? You could see it in terms of magazines and newspapers. You could see it in terms of Parliament. In some respects, it had been a politically central issue in terms of the debate over the repeal of the Corn Laws, the idea as to whether we should be uh, primarily, in some respects, a country which had a protected agricultural system, a a protectionism, or whether we should be open to the world and see how far our industrial capital and technological prowess would take us. You're talking, of it, uh, you're talking in terms of it being a pivotal moment in the redefinition, perhaps, or the new definition of Britain. I think it was a pivotal moment. I think it was a pivotal moment both in terms of policy but also as an expression of a new Britain. I mean, in some respects, you get the opening, and in some respects, it's very traditional. You have the Queen uh, very much in it. You have the Archbishop of Canterbury organising public prayers. You have a grand procession with all the dignitaries, etc., etc. But in other terms, what they were seeing and the context within which they were seeing it was dramatically new and different. Prince Albert has always been associated with it. Uh, what, and he, <coughs> excuse me, he headed it up as it were. What impact did he have and what impact did his being there have? Prince Albert was very important. He didn't originate the idea. The idea in many senses rested in a body called the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Manufacturers, Manufacturers, Commerce and Arts, which is known as now as the Society of Arts, which is still there, a body that was founded in 1754 and had sponsored uh, the kind of applied knowledge 
um, right through with competitions in the 18th century and with relatively small-scale exhibitions, and we're still doing this in the 19th century. It's still there today, in fact. Um, but Prince Albert, who was president of this, uh, of this body from the um, 1840s onwards, was important because he helped to make it a publicly acceptable policy. He went around, there are cartoons in places like Punch, showing, making fun of the way in which he solicited subscriptions to help finance the body, uh, the, the Great Exhibition. And I think, without a doubt, if Prince Albert hadn't been behind it, it wouldn't have been on the same scale or with the same intellectual um, sort of scope. Well, coming from Germany and a small kingdom in Germany, a small city-state, state, he had an idea of how... Uh, loud you had to shout to get noticed, really. I think it? that's fair. It's also worth saying they, they had had exhibitions, including in Germany. There was a big one in 1844, so he was aware of this wider international context. But if you look at Albert's policy within Britain, Albert was a determined moderniser. He, he, he was a firm believer in utilitarianism, and he was very interested in public health. He was very interested in the improvement of society. And also he saw that as having a crucial public purpose, that, that economic progress might en- open up big social divisions and as far as Albert was concerned, it was very important for the stability of society to try and have social cohesion and also, and this was very much of interest of the Royal Society uh, of the Arts, a kind of aesthetic basis to industrial progress. Hermione Hophouse, an advisory committee was set up to plan the exhibition. How influential were Francis Fuller and Henry Cole? Could you tell us about the part they played? I think they were the people who started it out within the Society of Arts. The Society of Arts had uh, suffered the usual decline and had then been pulled uh, up and, and, and was starting to reassert itself in the 1840s. And Francis Fuller, who was a land surveyor and who played a very important part later on, uh, and other members, including Henry Cole, began to um, pursue this matter of, of, of a, um, an exhibition. This was founded very largely um, on the French model. The French had had exhibitions of trade ever since the British um, had upset their trade so badly in the Napoleonic Wars. So the French reckoned that they knew about exhibitions, and this was made very clear throughout the the 1851, so that I think that what they were trying to do was to emulate the French and to beat them at their own game. The French came over to advise and the British thought they were rather supercilious, as I understand it. They were very... The the letters are absolutely marvellous. We, who've been doing it for some time, could help you... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they get short shrifted there from uh, the uh, British Advisory Committee. I think the British uh, were very diplomatic. Uh, and, of course, Queen Victoria was very keen on Napoleon III, so um, they had to be rather diplomatic. What kind of... What was the regional involvement in the planning process? We know it... Well, this was very impressive. They sent Henry Cole, Francis Fuller, and two or three others round to beat up local interest. And they had... What is also very important about the 1851 uh, exhibition is their marvellous record-keeping. They will tell you who was the chairman of the Oval Committee and who the uh, secretary and treasurer were, so that you can work out in 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 very small places how much money they raised, how many exhibits they sent, and who the leading figures were. And they had them all over the place. Um, There were obviously places like Bradford York's, which um, had an exhibition, but so did uh, Bradford on Avon. Um, so the little exhibitions, it spawned little exhibitions all over the country. All over the country, and you get figures like, for instance, the Clarks, the shoe people from Street, um, spearheading the Glastonbury thing, so that you can see 
who was important and who in each of these communities was actually raising the money. What were, the, how, what were they, to use a, a rather coarse term, I, please excuse me, what were they selling? How were they selling it to people they're going around? Because they're asking them to put themselves out a great deal, to invest a great deal. So uh, we've, heard, we've had the intellectual and social background to some extent from Jeremy. When they went out beating up support, as you, as you put it, what, were, what was their line? Well, they'd already produced one or two um, rather minor exhibitions in this country. Their uh, point, which I think people like the clerks took, was that this would enable them to sell more shoes um, or, um, and so on and so forth. So that um, it was an ad- a, a deliberate attempt to interest um, industrialists in, in, in getting their, uh, their wares out. And, of course, there was, as soon as they inspanned... Um, the Prince Albert, they had um, royal patronage, which they'd never had before, and this made an enormous difference. Claire Amsley, this is a time of huge political turmoil in the rest of Europe, the 1840s and particularly 1848 revolutions, uprisings, and a, and a, 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 a big movement here in this country, but it didn't turn into a revolution or an uprising, it just turned into a big movement, as it were. Uh, and Can you tell us about 1848 and the impact that had on Europe and how it left Britain as well? Well, I think the, the the British tended to feel rather smug about 1848. Um, the the British could uh, say manifestly, "We have the best constitutional system in the uh, in the world. Um, we don't have revolutions like everyone else in Europe." Uh, there'd been a massive insurrection in Paris, which had required an enormous uh, military uh, intervention. Um, There'd been uh, trouble in, throughout the Italian peninsula, in Vienna, in uh, Berlin. Um, crowned heads had, had, had rolled. Um, so the British could sit back and say, well, we didn't have... We a, had the Chartists. We had the Chartists, which led to some confrontations between the new Metropolitan Police in London and political... Um, well, Chartists, uh, political, uh, demanding the right to to vote, demanding a constitutional change. But it wasn't violent in the sense that it had been violent in in Europe. So um, the Great Exhibition can almost be seen as a kind of celebration coming on top of that. Look, we have the the best constitutional system. We have the, um, uh, the best economic system. Come and see us celebrate it. There was a, a lot of effort and energy went into the policing of the event, and the police, 22 years old at this stage, became much more important as a result of this exhibition. And there were fears that the revolutionary mob in this country might arise, despite the Pacific Chartists, as it were, or they might come over to visit it, and revolutionaries uh, might mingle with the crowds that were expected and set, and, and, and set little bonfires alight in London. Can you tell us how that was met? Uh, well, it, it's... it's uh even more interesting because Britain had become a haven for uh, liberal revolutionaries from across Europe. So London had got uh, a a clutch of Italians and Germans, Karl Marx, Giuseppe Mazzini and so on and so forth, who'd settled uh, in London after the revolution. And there were um, uh, Cassandras saying that if we have this exhibition, we're going to have revolution because you'll be inviting vast numbers of people to London, to this exhibition. There'll be a mixing of classes, um, and we've got the threat of 
the dangerous classes, a, a term which had been um, coined uh, just a decade bef- before by a French uh, police bureaucla- bureaucrat, Honoré Frégier. So uh, there is this, this... The dangerous classes. The dangerous classes, yeah. So uh, there is this, this major concern. Um, now, the implication was from 1848 that Britain doesn't have revolutions and possibly one reason for that is this new police force which is civilian uh, which doesn't as a rule carry uh, either edged weapons or guns Um, and so there was the the hope the belief that the exhibition could be policed by this new kind of civilian police Uh, and a new division was created of a thousand men specifically for uh, supervising the uh, the exhibition. Come back to that in a moment because it's fascinating when that developed. But Jeremy Black, just to sum up this section, uh, the exhibition was a huge organisational feat. We, we, we're going to get into what it is. But it, uh, um, there had been other exhibitions. Uh, mine is told us about France exhibitions in France. So this was on an enormous scale. Was there any pre- were there any precedents any in this country for that sort of thing at all? Not for exhibitions like that, for mass public um, gatherings, yes, but of a very different type. I mean, the state funeral of, of Nelson, which was held on the 9th of January 1806, saw um, enormous numbers of people in the streets around St Paul's, which was where it was held. Again, it was a highly choreographed uh, episode, but, of course, the difference between the state uh, funeral of Nelson or, for example, that one of Wellington, which followed um, the Great Exhibition, was held in 18, on the 18th of November 1852 and allegedly had about one and a half million people turn out for Wellington State Funeral. The difference between those is that, of course, there are these one-day affairs which are very much public, dis- public state occasions, whereas the Great Exhibition, it, in a sense, it has that on the opening day and thereafter it's much more of... Well, one hastens, one has to use the word care- cautiously, but it's much more of a democratic um, institution thereafter. I mean, in essence, as long as you're prepared to pay your ticket to get in, and obviously there are different prices for different different days and all the rest of it, you can go in and see it and you can choose how to move around the exhibition. There are, of course, guidebooks, but you can choose which order you want to see the things in. You can actually read uh, literature that praises it, but there's also contemporary literature that criticises it. So in some respects, and again, one has to be careful how one uses this word, but in some respects, it's a much more modern occasion. And to that extent, a modern occasion of that scale in Britain was unprecedented. And it ran for five and a half months. Hermione Hophouse, can you tell us a bit about the building? It was uh, based on a, on a plan by Sir Joseph Paxton, who had had a lot of experience up at Chatsworth, one way and another. Um, can you just tell us about the construction of this marvellous building in Hyde Park? Well, it was a, a, it's a very funny story, because they, uh, apply, uh, they asked for um, designs to start with. They produced, as they got, as you know, some 200 designs, quite a number from the French. Then the people who were behind the exhibition, Brunel, um, Barry a whole series of well-known figures, decided they could do their own, and they produced a monstrous design, uh, an enormous red red brick box, which would have taken three or four years to build, let alone to make the the, the bricks. And Joseph Paxton, who trained as a gardener for the Duke of... um, Devonshire, in in, in Derbyshire, in in Derbyshire... um, produced a, a design based on one of his conservatories. And he, very cleverly, he was a, a very early advocate of spin, gave the story to the Illustrated London News, who put it out alongside the other one. 
and he was more or less popularly um, given the, the, the job because nobody could argue with him. He'd been already to see his glass manufacturer. He'd been already to see the, the man who was going to make the, the iron. And it was basically an enormous glass house. What enormous in the sense, I mean, it, 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 it covered oak trees, didn't it? I mean, it, 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 it covered elm big. trees and eight, 18 acres of Hyde Park. And you can still apparently find the foundations because when they took it away, they left the, the foundations uh, underneath Hyde Park. But it was basically built um, as, a, as a great uh, glass house. The glass was produced by a Birmingham manufacturer called Chance and, of course, Fox and Henderson were the uh, marvellous contractors. But what one also has to say, that he was backed up by the people who planned the original, rather ridiculous building. The, the modules were the same. The way in which it was um, laid out had all been planned by the earlier people. And people like um, Wilde and um, Dilk went on to uh, work with uh, Paxton... Uh, Paxton is very good at giving the impression, or his um, biographers are, that he did it all by himself, but he didn't. The nearest modern equivalent, if you want to see a building which conjures something of the scale, nowhere near as big, is the Musée d'Orsay in Paris, um, which, in a way, if you go into that, in, funnily enough, if you thought of a much bigger version of that, with uh, industrial goods in it, but also, incidentally, the sculptures that they have in the Musée d'Orsay, because those kind of sculptures were very much present in the Great Exhibition, it gives you a sense. And in, in, a, in a way, it was like the great architecture that was going to be taken forward of the architecture of the railway. The railway, the big... I mean, a building like Paddington in, in, in Britain, which is a tremendous building, if you actually look at it in architectural terms, again, is a small example of the Great Exhibition. Yes, and it was, uh, to use that again, sorry about the phrase, it was cutting-edge engineering, wasn't it? I mean, they, they get to get the amount of glass, the size of glass, and the speed at which it was put up. When I was reading about it, that's astonishing. To get it, it was absolutely astonishing. It would have been the biggest building in, in, in London. Um, it, obviously, in terms of secular buildings, the only um, equivalent buildings you could probably have thought of that dominated skylines were the massive cathedrals. Um, and it, it was a wonder of the age. It was, in fact, if you think about it, probably the first wonder of the modern age, architecturally. And it, and it held about 14,000 exhibits. Uh, an enormous number of people, Clive Amsley, came uh, to this uh, exhibition uh, from all over the country we tell that one in four of the population so um can you tell us how the the movement of people um, how they got there how they could get there so cheaply how they could afford it and so on yes i mean it, it may not have been quite that number there was something like six million entries and some people would have bought a season ticket and came back um, time and again um, what happened, I suppose it was rather like the, the way the, the financing of, of various exhibitions um, was, uh, was created in the country. Um, mechanics institutes, for example, would have collections and they would um, put the money in a local savings bank so that members of that institute could, could uh, go to London. Um, employers uh, financed their, uh, their workforce to go down or members of their workforce to go down. Um, uh, vicars and teachers took impoverished young, uh, their, their young scholars to the exhibition. I mean, it really is an attempt to attract people from all social classes. Um, some of them are contributing uh, 
for their own travel, they're receiving money from uh, local MPs of putting into um, uh, mechanics institutes collections or collections in, in some of the big towns. Um, the, big ma- the mayors of the big towns are getting sponsorship so that people can go from the towns. It really is seen as a great national event that everyone really wants to get involved in. And from the records, is it an occasion of national pride? Are people coming back like, like Charlotte Bronte or like uh, Victor- Queen Victoria in her, in her very, very uh, detailed and brilliant accounts of it? Are people tremendously impressed and proud to be there? Is it a sort of proudest to be British occasion? Yes, I guess that would be the, probably the best way of putting it, you know. But this is also a symbol of, of the age. It's a symbol of progress. And we are part of progress um, and actually, by going and participating, you know, some of that is going to rub off on individuals. I mean, in terms, of the, I, sorry. Sorry, in terms of the pride in being British, on the opening day, the bands were playing Rule Britannia. Um, they were playing uh, the national anthem. They were playing the. Uh, they had a performance of the Hallelujah Chorus from from the Messiah. It was very much uh, a patriotic occasion to start off. One of the most important things about it is the railway, of course, because in fact um, you can trace this. Um, the, the railway, the Great Western Railway, had got as far as Froome in 1851, and an enormous party of children were, were sent up from, but they didn't come from further west. The answer was that this would have made an enormous difference. There's also a very moving account of a, lo- a whole lot of Kentish people who were brought up by their vicars, and these were people in their smocks. And people who saw them walking from Waterloo up to the Hyde Park said, these people are stranger to us than these foreigners. We've seen French foreigners before, but these sort of peasant people, you know, we haven't seen in London. So it was an enormous moment for the country to see the other half, as it were. It was a time when a lot of people made a major journey for the first time, not in their lives, but in the lives of the generations behind them, wasn't it? Absolutely. Can you give us... Jeremy, uh, you used the word cathedral, the building, and Clive was talking about symbol. I'd like to get into the idea... This was... It was proclaiming some sort of gospel, this, as well, wasn't it? There was a faith at work here. I mean, a secular faith. I'm using... I'm I'm deliberately being slightly provocative here, but something else was going on beside the exhibits themselves. Very much so. I mean... There was, incidentally, a, a religious dimension. I mean, the Archbishop of Canterbury led prayers at the opening ceremony, but essentially, yes, it was a secular faith in progress and a secular faith that human beings, through their own endeavour, could improve society. So that was seen both in the literature surrounding it, it was seen in many of the exhibits. I mean, things like, for example, which to us may seem mundane, condensed milk. Now, condensed milk, which was one of the things that was shown on the British uh, in the British area, because it was a British uh, development, was shown in, in the way in which, through modern society, you could create a safer product which could then be moved from the countryside. Mil- instead of worrying about fresh milk, you could actually condense it and therefore eat it in the, in the, in the, sorry, drink it in the, in, in the industrial cities and make life better for the bulk of the population. So there was a very strong utilitarian purpose there. And I, I think, in the sense of what you would have seen, it would have been very... You would have been very impressed that human beings could improve their society. Hermione Hobhouse, did the exhibition blur the distinction between art and commerce? Or I think it was always... In fact, the um, way in which the classes were organised made it perfectly clear that what they were interested in was, in fact, commerce and not art. Um, there were 30 classes of which... Um, of exhibits, 30, uh, class. 30 classes of exhibits, yeah. and only one was dedicated to art. Um, there was uh, f- a number dedicated to um, re- um, raw materials, 
another to machinery and a great many to manufacturers. And though some of the manufacturers are, were artistic in their terms, perhaps a little hideous to us, um, basically it, it was very clear that it was not about art. And this was one of the things that the Prince um, Consort was very clear about. It should be about manufacturing, creation of um, interesting manufacturers which would uh, bring England forward both in terms of technology and in terms of design. Because of that, was there some opposition to Pugin had his own corner, didn't he? He rather despised the building. He thought it was a... Well, in fact, there was a medieval court which was actually largely filled with objects produced by uh, Pugin's uh, builder, George Myers. So, in fact, um, Pugin had his little um, corner. It was one of the most glamorous ones. But the other one was, of course, the East India Court, which was filled with products brought by the East India Company from the, uh, the um, subcontinent. Clive, can you give us some idea before it goes? Uh, just give us more stuff that was in it for listeners who... What, what sort of things were in it? Maybe all chip in. What, what were we going to see? Well, you're going to see um, things from literally all over the world. There's a, uh, a Chinese um, uh, stand. Um, apparently the Chinese government didn't want to get involved, so the, the British in Hong Kong set that one up. There were American stands. Every, uh, I think, 32... That was American mowing machine, that reaping machine. Wasn't yeah, it? And, and 32 different countries sent um, products and almost, a, I guess, a celebration of, of their own achievements. So it is a, uh, it's an international exhibition with the, um, uh, the British thinking that they were really sitting on top. Uh, the Folkestone, for example, which was a, a big locomotive, which was for the trains on the uh, London to Paris uh, link. Um, that's an example of the sort of thing. Lot, lot, big pieces of coal-driven equipment. So the locomotive was in there. Oh, the locomotive, full-scale yeah. locomotive. I mean, remember, the, the great thing about a building of that size is you could have the largest pieces of industrial equipment that you wanted to display. And the manufacturers displayed all sorts of, uh, of, of uh, metal bashing equipment. Um, there, was, there were large pieces of coal to actually show people. And remember, most people in London, uh, although London was an industrial city, it was a sort of city of art, of crafts, really. They hadn't seen these great pieces of metal bashing, which were really quite impressive. Um, as Clive says, I mean, if you look for, across the world, what's interesting is the, there's a much more eclectic basis of what's sent in by different countries. So, for example, from Germany, there's much more of an emphasis on manufacturing goods. On, f from France, uh, there's uh, slightly more aesthetics, including, in fact, some erotic sculptures, which they had to cover up because the bishops didn't like them. Clive, th but let's go back to the policing, because you've got these crowds coming in, massive crowds, uh, walking through the streets from the railway stations, as, as Hermione has pointed out mostly, and, uh, uh, and going to Hyde Park, milling around, um, uh, and you know, hundreds of thousands of people. Um, there's a fear of, uh, uh, that, they, that there might be agitators in London yeah. anyway who might use it to agitate, or might, agitators might come over from other countries. So the London police bring in to play European police and say, we want your advice on how to deal with the people coming from your countries. It's a big operation, isn't it? I'm, I'm emphasising it because it was so successful as an operation and because it established the police in this country as a new force. Yes. Well, as I said earlier, there, there is a new division created of a 1,000 men. They invite people from the big British cities to come down to advise them on known criminals who they think might be uh, trying to pick pockets. They also invite something like three dozen European uh, policemen to come and advise the Metropolitan Police and to walk round with plainclothes Metropolitan Police officers looking for 
pickpockets in the exhibition. Uh, the Europeans think this is wonderful because they can send their men over uh, actually to keep an eye on their uh, political exiles, but they do also wander around the exhibition. Uh, the wonderful incident happens of um, uh, a group of French-speaking men who are believed to be behaving suspiciously, so the Metropolitan Police go in and, and arrest them, and they turn out to be half a dozen Belgian detectives who've actually been invited by the Metropolitan Police uh, to advise on, on uh, European pictures. Pockets. That'll teach them to speak a foreign language. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, can we? Uh, it ran for five and a half months, Mani Hobas, as we said. Um, what happened to the Crystal Palace afterwards? It was dismantled, and then another great operation took place. Well, there was an enormous row about it. Paxton naturally wanted to keep it there, and he got a whole lot of people from Manchester who thought it would be lovely. Um, the Londoners were less keen on having 18 acres of Hyde Park um, totally. Uh, barred to them and finally it was taken on by um, a railway company which ran through Sydenham, a man called Lang who owned property there and Francis Fuller, the uh, surveyor came back in and was I think the nominal chairman of the Sydenham company which provided a new venue for it and of course it was far more successful as a venue than Hyde Park. One of the problems about Hyde Park had been that there was no railway access and I think this is very interesting that they, they had terrible trouble moving those great um, bits of machinery because they had to be moved by horse and cart and the idea of moving uh, even a small engine by horse and cart is very horrifying. So that um, the Sydenham thing was railway linked from the start it was rebuilt um, rather more grandly, and both Brunel and um, Barry were involved. They put up enormous towers which carried the water. Uh, the idea was Paxton was called back and he provided a whole series of fountains, which were something that everybody felt they should have. So there you've got this uh, great palace full of all kinds of interesting things, like a, a copy of the... Um, of Abu Simbel, which was um, re re recreated by a whole lot of authorities. And uh, it was also a place that Londoners could go and presumably get drunk and sit around on a, on a Sunday and Saturday afternoon. So it became a very popular place to start with. Until uh, it burned down in 1936. Well, it uh, suffered an eclipse. It was, uh, what is very sad about it was it, it, it became really quite a problem just before the 14 war, Lord Plymouth put up enough money to, to uh, uh, save it. Then it was um, really revived quite well. But in 1936, for some reason, it burnt down. There is a theory that the government had it burnt down because they were frightened about German bombing and that it had been very useful to the Zeppelins in the 1418 war because um, you could see it from miles away. Um, there is another theory that it was just incompetence. It was full of odds and ends and rubbish, and, of course, once it went up, there was nothing much you could do. It was a very smart fire, if you may say so. It could be seen from Brighton, and one member of the royal family turned up in his dinner jacket uh, actually at Sydenham to watch it. So, I mean, it didn't go un un unnoticed. 
Let's go back into the middle of the uh, 19th century, Jeremy. But what were the responses to the Great Exhibition at home and abroad? Because we've, I've been pushing it, and we, you've been talking uh, in, in positive and almost eulogistic terms, but there, was, there, were, there were other opinions, weren't there? There were other opinions. I mean, Karl Marx commented that the Crystal Palace was a pantheon in which the bourgeoisie had erected gods in its own image and was now worshipping them. I think it's fair to say that that was a minority opinion, but on the other hand, it was pointed out by a number of commentators that the Crystal Palace, um, sorry, that the Great Exhibition um, offered nothing in terms of um, the account of the plight of workers. I mean, for example, there are one or two cartoons, even in Punch, and obviously in more radical periodicals, there's far more on that. Uh, And indeed, it's worth bringing out something we haven't mentioned yet, that during the building of it, which was incredibly impressive, there were also labour disputes, um, and that aspect of it tends to be downplayed, um, that they weren't regarded as particularly, the, the constructors weren't regarded as particularly good employers. I think, though, on the whole, although there was criticism, and of course there was some foreign criticism, you get occasional foreign criticism on the uh, on aspects of this being, you know, gr- British grandstanding, and um, for example, the opening ceremony, the foreign ambassadors are treated as sort of almost like subjects of British greatness. Um, although you do get that, on the whole, what is interesting is that the is that the contemporary uh, perception was of amazement. Um, it was much greater in scale than any of the continental exhibitions had been hitherto. That impressed foreigners, and the British were impressed by it as a, as a display of beneficent patriotism. Clive? There were concerns about, uh, about visitors being ripped off by people putting up hotel prices, um, by restaurants overcharging. And if you look at the, the Times correspondence columns at the very beginning... Uh, There were concerns that uh, uh, people would order and then the menu would be lost and they would be charged twice as much um, uh, when the bill came, uh, which was all put down to employee error. Oh, the the waiter is new, sir. He doesn't really know. Um, But as as the exhibition wore on, these concerns become fewer and fewer. Um, and, And people... Again, that becomes um, uh, something to celebrate, that visitors aren't really being ripped off in the way that we feared they would be. And these kinds of concerns just disappear from the, the, the letter columns. Have we any idea of the... Because of the, um, we're, we're talking very much of a class society and a class society that's changing, but we would see itself as a class society. Have we any idea of the distribution of the classes in the attendance at the exhibition? Very difficult to say, but certainly the cheapest tickets were a shilling, and uh, and with the that's for all day, is it? That's that's for all day. <laughs> yeah, for the whole but, day. Yeah. Well, it's for, it's for the whole day, but it's on certain days of the week. Yeah. Uh, I think that's Monday to Thursday. It's more expensive on Friday and Saturday. Um, so the the people who are coming from the big industrial cities from the countryside and so on um, are not really coming they're not going on the expensive days and the the one shilling is is part of the package that they're getting uh, in in the collections and in their own collections uh, that are going on but there is this there is a massive mixing of classes i mean it's already been pointed out about the uh, uh, the, the the kentish people in their smocks uh, and so on and so forth one of the things of course was that how soon they brought down the the price the price had come down from Monday to Thursday, already in May, and um, curiously for our, uh, to our ideas, it goes up on Saturdays. <laughs> but um, uh, the, I think there was an enormous um, mix, and um, 
one of the things I wanted to say about the exhibition, the actual things exhibited, that some of them uh, stri- uh, strike us as rather odd. One of the ones that was most was the um, American Harim Paz's Greek Slave, which was actually a, a figure of a lady um, stark naked and chained. It's a great embarrassment to the American Museum that has it these days because it's so fas- unfashionable, but it was much seen at the time. And another thing which is rather interesting is an enormous um, monument um, by Kiss of um, an Amazon riding a horse being attacked by a lioness, which can still be seen outside a museum in Berlin. And this was a copy made in zinc. And this was therefore came in as a mechanical thing rather than an artistic object. And it's, it's a very interesting example. It was one of the things most um, noticed. But it was there because of the ability to provide it in zinc rather than... Um, Rather but than as a work of, work of work art. art. Jeremy, is there a, Jeremy Buck, is there any sense in which this is seen as a shift in where uh, the power might lay in this country? That this is this is the the industrial manufacturing bit belt saying, you know, uh, not we are we are the, not we are the rulers now, but very little to do with the landed aristocracy, the warrior class, the court class, which had which had by and large uh, run, run things for a very long time. Is there that is that in the air? Absolutely. 1851 is the first of the national censuses in which the majority of the population live in the towns or the cities. And there is a fundamental shift. In fact, really, modernity takes place in the third quarter of the 19th century. And the the Great Exhibition sees a massive um, uh, recognition of the fact that Britain is industrialising, that the agricultural sector is being hit hard by international trade. Um, I mean, it's linked to the repeal of the Corn Laws, which had been an incredible defeat for the agricultural interest and had split the Conservative Party, or the Tories, whatever you want to call them then. Um, And in a sense, there is a, uh, with the Great Exhibition, there is simultaneously a national mood, but as you also correctly say, there are, it's it's elements within the society of um, the use of public institutions and private commercial um, interests in order to modernise Britain. I think that the combination of the two is very important. Clive, can I just ask you to give us a brief comment on (coughs) what impact this had around the world, what it did for for Britain's reputation as a... Well, I mean, it's I suppose basically what Britain wanted it to do. Um, That here you have a, a massive exhibition which is attracting people from well, certainly all over Europe, and probably some from America. I'm, I'm not sure that we really know the figures from America. But, but there, is, um, uh, there is excursion traffic organised from France to this. And it, it, it does have this sort of massive impact that um, certainly liberals in Europe are looking to Britain for the constitutional and economic model to follow. And the, the exhibition... Um, really cements that in in the way that um, in the way that people within Britain understand it, and the way that that liberals, um, not the the authoritarian perspective, perceive of the of the country, or people who look at perfidious Albion understand Britain. But but it. it yeah, it, it does what people wanted it to do. Crucially, of course, Queen Victoria and the British elite embrace it, so it's not divisive in the sense that it could have been if it had been in a different political context. It, I was going to say, it also demonstrates that the classes can um, 
exist side by side and can go and rub shoulders with each other um, at uh, an event. Uh, and that, I think, is very significant after the, eight, the hungry 1840s, Chartism, revolutions and so on. Hermione Hoppers, can I come to the finally, final question, that, uh, the legacy, which is the great, <coughs> great museums of South Kensington and so on, which is a direct legacy and a massively important one for this Well, they country. refounded the Royal Commission um, immediately after the exhibition uh, closed, and it still stands today. In fact, I, in my time, was a commissioner. And it, it has a great educational role. First of all, it's set up the South Kensington Museums, and they're almost all um, tenants uh, on the commissioners. Um, that, and uh, they put up the Albert Hall, um, the various museums, the V&A, and so on and so forth. And they also, later on, started uh, producing scholarships. They did a lot in, the, in scholarships in the 1890s, uh, particularly for provincial museums, where they sent a lot of people, interestingly, to be educated in Germany. <laughs> and they are still producing scholarships today. So they are, in fact, a very important relic of the Great Exhibition. It's a tremendous drive-through, isn't it, that? I, you've, you've got to, I mean, there's unequivocal admiration for the way, not only the exhibition, but drove right through to the museums and the broader cultural... Absolutely, and of course it was, it was copied abroad. I mean, things <laughs> like the, the, the Paris exhibition, which leads to the Eiffel Tower, looked directly to the British example. It was seen as a tremendous international event. Oh. Well, and again, it's followed a uh, hundred years later by the Great Exhibition in... Uh, in London to celebrate the new Elizabethans um, and the uh, coming out of the austerity of the Second World War, or hopefully coming out of the austerity of the Second World War. Um, this uh, new exhibition, which again is, is celebrating discovery, the Dome of Discovery, the Skylon and so on, uh, progress. Final word, Jeremy Black. I think that if you look at the Great Exhibition, you can see it exemplifying the utilitarianism, the globalisation, the liberalism, the social mixing, which were many of the better features of British society. Obviously, there were faults. Obviously, there were flaws. But on the whole, I think it's one of the few great examples of an occasion we can celebrate without equivocation. Well, thank you very much. Thank you, Hermione Hophouse. Thank you, Clyde Umsley and Jeremy Black. Next week, we'll be talking about fairies, the mythical creatures that obsessed the Victorians, fed the 16th century witchcraft trials, and were the child demons of the ancient world. And I'm supposed to say there are podcasts, uh, newsletters, and downloads around the place. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this Radio 4 podcast. You can find hundreds of other programmes about history, science and philosophy at bbc.co.uk forward slash Radio 4.